0: Uh, turn in, in your Bibles, if you will, uh, again to Luke chapter 15. Uh, <clears throat> I am in a complete uh, quandary because there is so much uh, in the passage we're entering, and I'm determined not to leave anything behind, but if I do that, we'll be here till about 2 o'clock. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> so we'll just take it one step at a time and we'll take several weeks, but I don't want to shortchange this passage. Uh, there's way, way too much in it, and uh, <clears throat> it's not at all what you think it is. So let me uh, begin. We're, we're going, of course, we're, we're in Luke, Luke 15, which is one big parable told in three different iterations. One of them, we saw the lost sheep. One of them, last week we saw the lost coin, today we enter, um, I would say the lost son, but there are two lost sons, And um, <clears throat> but we're, we're in what is normally called the prodigal son, that is a terrible uh, nomenclature for this passage, but we'll, we'll unearth all of that as we move along. Um, let me begin... <clears throat> and by the way i'm calling it the compassionate father and the two lost sons uh, so there are three people in this in this parable we're going to uh, to see let me let me just read uh, read it first it's luke 15 from 11 verse 11 all the way to the end of it the parable of the prodigal son uh, verse 11 and he said there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then it ends. Premature, perhaps. Uh, (laughs) Let me just start by telling you um, a couple of statements from Tim Keller. Tim Keller has a book called The Prodigal God. Uh, You should get that book if you don't already have it. Uh, it will turn this parable on its head for you, and that is going to be a good thing. But uh, here's, here's a quote. If the teaching of Jesus is likened to a lake, this famous parable of the prodigal son would be one of the clearest spots where we can see all the way to the bottom. That's a stunning statement to make uh, by someone uh, of that ilk. Uh, Keller, by the way, was uh, his, his life as a minister, was, was transformed by a man named Ed Clowney. Uh, Ed Clowney was uh, the first president of Westminster Seminary. At, uh, when Bobby and I were bumping into uh, to Tim and his wife Kathy, uh, Tim had come uh, to Westminster in a degree program, but he was teaching there, and it was so humorous to watch Whenever Tim would walk from the education building over to the library, he was like the Pied Piper. He had students who just followed him, and they were were constantly waiting for a crumb to fall off uh, the table. But uh, but when Keller talks about being transformed, he was transformed by a sermon on the prodigal son by Ed Clowney. Um, These are some of the comments that Keller makes, having his eyes opened uh, to this passage Two groups of people had come to listen to Jesus. What what Keller's doing here is laying the context. There is is nothing ever more important when you pick up a Bible and open it and read a passage than considering the context that passage falls in. That is why we consistently, for 2,000 years, have misinterpreted this this parable. Uh, And When I say misinterpreted, that's too strident. We don't misinterpret it. We interpret only a portion of it. Properly, but uh, this would help. Here is here is the context. Two groups of people have come to listen to Jesus. We've been tracking this now for a number of chapters through the Gospel of Luke. First are the tax collectors and the sinners uh, who correspond in this to the younger brother uh, engaged in wild living. And that infuriates the Pharisees. You remember right here in the 15th chapter, Uh, The 15th begins, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying this man receives sinners and actually eats with them. Shame, shame, shame. Uh, So the tax collectors and the sinners are following Jesus. That's going to be the younger brother. Secondly, the Pharisees and the scribes who correspond to the older brother. Uh, They held to traditional morality, prayed all the time, studied the Bible all the time, worshiped all the time. Corresponding to the older brother. Uh, the attraction of the younger brothers to Jesus was an ongoing pattern of Jesus's ministry. Uh, we'll get into this later. <clears throat> uh, the target of this parable is not wayward sinners. That's why I don't like the title of the prodigal son. We all focus on the prodigal son who, who does a lot of bad things. The target of this parable are the religious people. The target of this parable is the elder brother, not the younger brother. Uh, So the original listeners were not melted into tears like we think you're supposed to be when you read this parable. Now, certainly uh, in the middle, when, when the younger brother comes home and his father comes out, that's a very poignant moment. Uh, But the original hearers of this parable were thunderstruck, and we should be thunderstruck. The next couple of weeks we'll we'll, uh, unpack this a little bit. Offended, infuriated. Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. I think I'm going to have hymnals arching toward me pretty soon, Uh, but uh, keep that last statement in mind, Jesus's purpose is not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. His story reveals the destructive self-centeredness of the younger brother, no doubt about that, the so-called prodigal, it also, and especially, condemns the elder brother's moralistic life. So both the irreligious and the religious are spiritually lost say that again, both the irreligious, easy to see the younger brother, uh, the so-called prodigal, uh, but focus as well on the elder brother. Uh, Both are spiritually lost. Both life paths are dead ends. Every thought the human race has had about how to connect to God has been wrong. (laughs) Other than that, uh, we're in good, you're very familiar with this parable. And by the way, the word prodigal <clears throat> does not mean wayward. Uh, the word prodigal means recklessly, spendthrift. It, it means a number of things. Some of you have uh, virtual thesaurus on your computer. Uh, prints out a little bitty uh, uh, pattern for you. If you look up prodigal on it, what you see, uh, words like lavish, munificent, overgenerous, too generous, unsparing, unstinting, uh, recklessly extravagant, uh, profligate uh, all these kinds of things so when you hear the word prodigal don't think that it's just talking about this uh, younger brother who is uh, a sinner uh, that is not uh, what what this parable is about it certainly will include that uh, so let's, let's uh, unpack it a little bit. Verse 11 is the beginning <clears throat> of where we are now. And he said there was a man who had two sons. So there's three people right off the bat. The three people in this uh, parable and all three are extremely central. And we will look closely at all three uh, over the next uh, amount of time. You've got a father and he's got two sons. The first half of verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, we read that, and we perhaps think, uh, God, that's a little cheeky. Uh, well, it's much, it's much more than that. And by the way, I'm going to also, um, I've mentioned Kenneth Bailey before. He's a the, he's the guy I go to often with parables because of, uh, Kenneth Bailey was a man a theological professor who spent about sixty years in the Middle East, uh, and his uh, focal point was getting to understand uh, the Middle East not only of, of his day, uh, but also of uh, biblical era Middle East. So he's
1: extremely
0: helpful. He too, actually, he has two books on this parable. One of them, where he's using biblical theology uh, to uh, to unpack how this parable. Uh, is an extension of Jacob back in Genesis. We're not going to go down that uh, particular rabbit trail as juicy as that rabbit would be to uh, to encounter. Uh, we're going to stick with his other uh, work, which has to do pointedly with this. And at this point in verse 12, the beginning of it, where the younger uh, son comes to his father and says, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Here are some of the implications that would have been understood by the father, by the community in which this family lives. Uh, Number one, and maybe most importantly, every single person throughout the Middle East, then and today would read such a statement, hear such a statement coming from uh, from a son uh, to his father. Uh, as saying one thing very, very clearly, I am impatient for you to die. I want you to die. That's what the younger son has just come in uh, to his father with this request. Uh, Give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Um, If you look at the larger picture, this is is not that different. The reason that that we go through and, and our generation is no different. Uh, those who want to rebel against God will, will wind up writing books about the death of God. God is, there is no God. Um, you're either an atheist, you're agnostic, or you're something, and you're going to eventually get to the death of God. That is that is the desire of those who do not know God. Uh, it has always been that way. It will always be that way. And this uh, younger son is, is a mirror into that kind of heart. Only he... Um, He's in a very uh, unique situation in terms of a family that's going to be examined through Scripture. Uh, Obviously, here's another implication. He's driven by a very self-centered pride. He is thinking only of himself. Uh, Here's another one. He's not uh, necessarily broken the law. Now, if you read a lot of commentaries on this, you will will be uh, often told that his request is inappropriate. Uh, It certainly is that it is inappropriate, but it is not illegal. What he is asking for was something that the uh, the Pharisaical rules even would allow this father to do. Occasionally, they would do that. However, when that was done, as it is still today, often the case uh, today we might call it a trust fund. Uh, You could uh, you could give someone possession, but not disposition. Of the funds. In other words, you could, you might uh, take your children and, and say, "Okay, I've got a, a big trust fund for you, and when I die, you will take control of it. And then you can dispose of it as you wish." But for now, I still control the funds, and I will choose how it is possessed. Uh in, in one one sense, obviously, trusts have uh, various ilk's and various uh, degrees of control over the funding. Sometimes it can't. Uh, there are. Um, Oh, irreversible not irre- irrevocable uh, irrevocable so that once you've signed it uh, it's done and not to be revoked but but what this son is asking for is something uh, that that could be done so he's not he's not asking something that's illegal uh, Deuteronomy 21 verse 17 uh, talks a little bit about um, about this but what would happen because this there are two sons this is the younger son uh, at this point Father's death, the younger son would get one third of the uh, estate. The older brother gets two thirds of it. That's that's biblical law. Uh, so again, what he's saying is, I want it now. I want the whole thing now. I want to be able to take control of it and how uh, how it is how I will control the disposition of it. Uh, so again, this was occasionally done. It's extremely unusual, and in order to make that request. Again, everybody around this family knows that you you couldn't possibly have slapped your father's face to any greater degree than you did by asking this question of him. Uh, so while the son technically has not broken the law, he has broken his father's heart. Uh, he is also clearly doesn't care what his demand is going to mean to the rest of the family in order for the father to do what he's talking about, uh, his, his uh, assets, we don't know what they were, uh, but almost certainly they were, they were illiquid. They were probably land, they were probably things that he would have to go through a lot of uh, machinations in order to get uh, accomplished what, this, uh, what his young son is asking him to do. And that's going to influence the rest of the family negatively in large, large ways. Um, The son apparently doesn't care about that. Uh, So he's demanding privilege with absolutely no responsibility. Usually, what would happen when a son, or if you wanted to make such a, a request, you would say, I want my inheritance. But if you look carefully at the beginning of verse 12, you won't find the word inheritance. The word inheritance is very common throughout the New Testament, uh, eight, four times in the book of Luke itself. But that word, that Greek word is not what is used uh, here. The word um, that, that uh, is used in this verse is usias. Uh This is the only time in the entire New Testament that this word is found. It simply means wealth or property. He's avoiding the word inheritance, which would, you would have expected in this sentence. Uh, to accept an inheritance, and the reason the son doesn't want to use that word and make his statement in that, in that manner is that to receive an inheritance means you receive leadership responsibility within the family. Uh, meaning you solve your family's quarrels. Uh, you defend the honor of the family. Your, your role becomes that of building up the house and the household and the clan of your father, but this is a responsibility that this young man does, does want nothing whatsoever to do with. Uh, in fact, that's exactly what he's trying to avoid, and that's why this word um What he's saying is, uh, just just give me the money. Uh, I don't have any intention of of uh, being recognized as a member of the family, and I could care less about what uh, what happens. Uh, here's another one, the younger son uh, severs himself from his roots. Now that, um, that is a, an enormous issue in, in this era of history, and I would argue has always been throughout every culture until recently in the culture in which we live. Uh, the movement over the last 20 years or so uh, to destroy the family uh, in the American culture is is probably the most single most serious issue of all of the incredible dissolution we see around us. That one carries an enormous influence and impact because the family is the key unit. Uh, John Frame, goodness, he writes about 400 pages uh, on the pivotal role of the family in God's Creation and why God made the family and what what it, the many things it's meant uh, to accomplish. But uh, this younger son is severing himself from all of that. That would have been an enormous buzz around the village when this uh, when this young man comes up and says this. Here's another one. Uh, he's severing the conception of partnership with his father that pertains to family possessions. Uh, this was always, uh, again, wrapped within the family. It's it's part of the nuance tangentially, part of the nuance when we say in the Lord's Prayer, "Give us this day our daily bread." That is that is, this this communal sense that I don't I'm not out here functioning as a one solo human being in the presence of this planet. Uh, there is always this sense of of communal. Uh, integrity that accompanies everything, including possessions. And this son is saying, "I'm not, I'm not interested in any of that. It's me against the world." Um, the younger son, totally responsible for becoming lost. Here we are back in the context again. The sheep was lost inadvertently because of the nature of a sheep. He, the sheep didn't sit there and ponder uh, whether he wanted to leave the rest of his friends and walk around the hills and the valleys and the mountains and whatever, uh, wherever he was. The coin, inanimate. But here is a case and the the pinnacle of this chapter and what Jesus is teaching to these Pharisees, to these morally religious, end quote, people. This is a lostness that is absolutely intentional and responsible. Tends to be the way humans... Uh, function so the younger son's problems to sum it all up is his heart that's where all the sin comes from needless to say dissatisfaction with his father uh, becomes a determination to leave his father he's exchanging the truth for a lie uh, and God is going to give him over we're functioning through Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to 32 I mention that passage often because it is so incredibly illuminating to so many times in all of our lives. In verse 18 of Romans 1, uh, you, people know the truth. Every, every human on the planet is created in the image of God. But they choose foolishly <coughs> to suppress that aspect of their being in order to approve and embrace sinful belief and behavior. Uh, this is happening to this son. He begins uh, dissatisfied with the house he's in, with his maybe his older brother, um, with God in the church, if we extend these sorts of things out. And God is giving him over to a determination to leave his father and his father house. He is, uh, he is in a state of mutiny, abandonment, and total destruction, basically saying with crystal clarity, Father, I wish you were dead. That's what is behind the statement that begins the 12th verse. Now, the rest of that verse, uh, he and his father divided his property between them. Uh, Again, Middle Eastern father would be expected to kick the son out of the house. Any any son who would have had the audacity to ask what this son is at. Uh, But what does his father do? Uh, He he goes through with it. He divides up the assets between both the sons. uh, Verse 12, that second part. uh, And he, the father, divided his property between them. So he goes through. He not only uh, liquidates whatever it was he liquidated, apparently uh, the vast majority of whatever his wealth was, uh, but uh, he then gives the son what was his share and, and also to the to his older brother. Um, goodness, uh, not a rabbit, it's an elephant. Just walk across the back of the room here. The, what, what this is a reflection of is, is the faithfulness of God in the covenant. The father in this parable, throughout this parable, is representing God, the father. And what you're seeing here is God's faithfulness to the covenant, even when we come and slap his face. Even when we fail to repent and don't even concern ourselves with repentance, but shake our fists in God's face, he is faithful to his covenant. Now, there is a point in time where he will be faithful to the curses of his covenant. Uh, But uh, nonetheless, there's an aspect, a very important aspect of that in the father's behavior in the second path of that 12th verse. Uh, Now, verse 13 Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Uh, the younger son gets out of town as quickly as he can uh, not many days later, it says, and he gathered all his he had, meaning hes, uh, he's going, he needs cash that, he's not interested in deeds to property that his father owns or anything like that. He's converted everything uh, to very liquid assets and he's getting out of town, gathering all he has. And he takes a journey into a far country, far country. He's getting way out of town, a Gentile country. Uh, this son is, is, um, is doing very dramatic things here. Uh, now that phrase that's translated here in the ESV took a journey, that's a, that's a very unusual Greek word. That's the only time it's it's found anywhere um, uh, here in this, in this gospel. And what it more correctly, more fully would be translated. He traveled away from his own people. Uh, probably English translators, you you Translation is not easy, you, you have to, when you're moving from one language to another, doesn't matter which language into which language, you have to, uh, to deal with the nuances, the semantic range of a word. Uh, they are, there's one verb here and what uh, they're saying is, he took a journey. Well, yes, he took a journey pointedly to get away from every bit of his root system, every bit of his family. Uh, he's turning away with volition uh, from his own people. Uh, Kenneth Bailey here uh, has, a, I think, a, a beautiful sentence here. Bailey says the only thing that followed him was his father's love, which, of course, he could care less about. Uh, but again, think of the love of the father. Uh, I, I won't say, as you sin, I'll say, I know, I know my heart, I, as I sin, my father's love follows me, and I can't fall out of it. Um, more at 11. Uh, and it's that 13th verse, there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he was a, became a spendthrift. We, normally you hear, uh, or you presume perhaps, uh, when you get to the prodigal son, that, that he's uh, dealing with prostitutes and all this. Uh, as we see, the elder brother assumes that. The elder brother puts that out there. Uh, later in this passage, but there is nothing whatsoever in the 13th verse that that says anything other than he was a spendthrift, he was a reckless spender. Um, You know, you you see some of these athletes today who get hundreds of million dollars uh, contracts, and within about five years they're broke, and you're thinking, well, how in the world is that even possible? How could you even spend? I mean, after you built 10, 20 houses, what... what, um, how well, because whenever the the price tag is put out there in the public, then all of a sudden a massive number of people come in who start chipping away in various ways to take from you what they know you have, and all of a sudden you have friends that uh, that you never knew uh, this This is pretty commonplace here, uh, but uh, at any rate he's he's squandering his property he's scattering um, he thinks he's finally free. He, he thinks he has broken all the fetters that have held him back. He can do anything he wants, buy anything he wants. He can buy love, he can buy friendship. He can buy anything he wants, he thinks. Until he finds himself in a different pattern as we uh, see as we read the whole, up through the verse uh, 24 in this uh, parable where the, uh, his particular portion comes to somewhat of a conclusion He has no friends. All of a sudden, when he's hungry and starving to death, nobody will feed him. So the things that he thought he was buying with his money uh, turn out to be false friends. Uh, But no indication of immorality. Maybe he did, but it certainly is not there in in the biblical picture. the bottom line of verse thirteen is that we're simply never a free agent. You cannot become a free agent. You cannot escape God. Uh, that, in point of fact, was exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. That was Satan's. That Satan's approach to everybody on the planet. Uh, you mean that, that God probably told you not to eat? That oh, he, he just knows it's, it's so good to eat. He doesn't want. I've got a better plan for your life, and that same kind of approach. Is what, uh, is what we all encounter. Now, the storm clouds gather in verse 14. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose and he began to be in need. So storm clouds uh, coming up as they invariably will when you're out ignoring God, trying to run and escape from God. Uh, he spends everything, so, he, so he's, he's broke now. A famine comes in and now he's in need. So how's he going to deal uh, with these needs and these circumstances? This is the, this is the, the dividing point in this man's life. What's he going to do to handle all of these things that he has created himself, all of the aspects of his particular lostness? Well, he can go one of two ways. Um, he's going to respond in his own strength which is the wrong response, but it's oh so common. Remember when uh, the entirety of, of the Southern Kingdom was taken into exile in Babylon for 70 years, only a small remnant came back. Only a small remnant took the responsibility, knowing of the hardship they were, they were volunteering for, to come back and try to start over. The vast majority, of those Jews from the Southern kingdom stayed in Babylon. Verses 15 and 16. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. Again, uh, this one that we probably understand. Why does he try to solve his problems on his own strength? Uh, because number one, if he goes home, he's going to have to face an elder brother. That, that when we finish the parable, you see, I know, I get the impression uh, that uh, you just, I wouldn't have, it just doesn't seem like it was a good relationship. I'm thinking about my older brother. Uh, he and I have loved each other a long time. <clears throat> I remember one day in the fifth grade at recess when some bullies were coming to beat me to a pulp. Um, I'm sure I had done nothing wrong, um, but it was my brother that walked around the, the edge of the building, three years older than me, and that that did it. They dispersed. Um, but at any rate, he's got to face this this elder uh, brother that doesn't seem to be that uh, on that wavelength with him. Uh, secondly, he's going to re- re- face the ridicule of the villagers, and I can't resist. Uh, This one, I so rarely get a chance to turn to 2 Kings, uh, but um, turn to 2 Kings. Chapter 2, this is a a story about Elisha that uh, you really don't often encounter. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, this is when Elisha is taking over from Elijah. And uh, we'll pick up in verse 19, it says, when the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. So he, Elisha says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and they threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now here is uh, interesting. He went up from there to Bethel and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Some of us have it. uh, We like that. that. Uh, Verse 24, he turns around and this is Elisha, the prophet Elisha. He turns around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. So, I don't know why I wanted you to read that. <laughs> At any rate, uh, he's going to uh, face a lot of ridicule, uh, not only from the small boys of, of the village, but from everybody, if he were to dare set foot back in that village. And thirdly, there's a there was a pattern uh, to this called Kadaza. Uh, he would be... Uh, he would be in a ceremony of kadaza, which for Jews who lost the family wealth to Gentiles and then attempted to come home. That's what kadaza, the ceremony is about. A pot is broken at the feet of the accused and the villagers all cry out, this person is cut off from his people. Uh, now, that goes on today. If you, uh, I remember at Westminster working with an organization called Jews for Jesus. They do a uh, they do a lot of good work. Uh, Jewish people who are believers, and uh, and I was, uh, we were, became good friends with a lot of of those uh, folks. And uh, they they used to tell us about meeting their parents on the street of San Francisco. That's back in those days. I don't know if it still is, but that's where the headquarters of Jews for Jesus was. And when they would meet their parents, their parents would not make eye contact, and usually had a funeral complete with a coffin where they buried their son or daughter who had the audacity to believe in Jesus and, and become evangelist to Jews. This is what this son is going to face. Uh, so he hires himself out to a Gentile to feed pigs. Double, double problem there. The Gentile is known as a goyim, a dog to all Jews. Uh, still today in in most uh, serious Jewish uh, undertakings, in order to feed pigs, which is an unclean animal to Jews. So not only is he he dealing with unclean people, namely Gentiles, but he's dealing with unclean animals to boot. Uh, So he is now, as a Jew, this young son is now unclean, estranged, cut off, and an alien. He is starving. He's longing to eat the food uh, that the pigs are eating. He is without a friend and he is begging. He is in a deep, deep hole. Um, ah, verse 17, I'll, I'll just stick another toe in this pond. Uh, when he came to himself, he said, "'How many of my father's higher servants "'have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger?' Uh, Let's go to 18 and 19. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now in many commentaries, you will see it said that this is the beginning of his repentance. It is not. Uh, There is nothing of remorse expressed here. There is nothing of sin expressed here. And I'll tell you what is expressed here. Um, not only no regret, uh, it's only a desire not to starve, which is understandable. So he gets a business plan put in place. And in verses 18 and 19, um, he says, father, I have sinned. And we say, well, that's gotta be repentance. Well, I won't turn there, but if you want to mark it down, Exodus 10, 16, that is a quote of Pharaoh. When Moses is trying to get the people freed and you have all the plagues going on, after plague number one, Moses goes back to Pharaoh and he says, I have sinned. Father, I have sinned. Was Pharaoh repentant? No, he was not. Um, The young son's words here uh, are not words of repentance. Uh, Notice also, he says, hired me. Uh, put me back in as your hired servant that too is a very unique Greek word misthios uh, Which means he's not going to have to live in the home. He's going to uh, he's going to be um, uh, Living in another village in fact To get a trade so he can pay back because he knows he's going to have to pay back if he comes home He's got to pay back uh, the money that he took from his father uh, so he's anticipating a sort of apprenticeship for the rest of his life, uh, which means, according to, uh, to Keller, to Bailey, to, uh, to a lot of other commentators, I can, can tell you that he's, this younger brother at this point is not really going home at all. He's still in the far country spiritually. He's still lost spiritually. He is not seeking reconciliation in his plan And he has missed, in other words, the entire issue. It's not the lost money that is the problem. It's not the specific sin that is the problem. It's the lost relationship with the Father. This is where this parable at this point speaks so powerfully to all of us. Our tendency is to think, oh my goodness, look at what I did. Uh, or maybe look at what I did and continue to do. There's no way God could ever forgive. That's the thinking of this younger son at this point. And it is utterly wrong because God, the father, we have seen what this man, uh, this father of this family has done. Even when his son comes up and says, I wish you were dead. He says, here, take it, take all of it. Uh, the problem is not the money, but the father's broken heart. It is not a broken law, but a broken relationship, and that is the key to the gospel. That is why Keller and so many others, uh, actually not so many others, I wish that were true, but why, uh, why some say this parable is not what you think it is. It's, it's not simply that we assume when we sin, oh no, uh, we've got to repent of this sin. True enough, true enough, but the issue is who is the father? Remember, again, the context. Now, let's zoom out a little bit. Jesus has been pummeled by these Pharisees and scribes who are angry with him because he would dare to talk to a sinner. Jesus is attracting all of the sinners, all the tax collectors, all of those kinds of people, and it makes the moralists angry. Uh, we will uh, we'll have to pick up... Um, pick up with that I'm afraid I'm sorry to leave you um, right on the edge of the wonderful news let me just uh, look let me I can't leave you in a hole like this verse 20 and he arose and came to his father but while he was still a long way off his father saw him, felt compassion ran embraced him and kissed him keep that thought in mind and we will pick up here uh, next week and then we will get uh, to the part the main character of this parable, who is not the so-called prodigal son. He is the brother of the prodigal son. Let's pray. Father, uh, this this passage, this uh, entire parable, from verse 11 to the end of this chapter, is so incredibly profound, so filled with signposts that, that show us is, it's like holding a mirror up to our own hearts our own minds the things we struggle with the things that keep us thinking we're still out in the back country in the far country and we can't come home because look at what we've done look at what we have failed to do look at how we have responded to what has been done to us uh, Father help us to understand that the issue is that we, when we think that way We are building a barricade between a God that loves us. And we know that you, Father, when you see us coming, when you see our hearts willing to be humble before you and to simply stand and say, in me is nothing but condemnation. But in you, Father, is love. And I depend on your love. I am here to claim it. And your response is to run and embrace and kiss us. Father, help us to understand uh, what it means to have a covenantally faithful God as our Father, even when we are not covenantally faithful children. Uh, Father, embrace us in that love and help us to understand it and know it well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.